Welcome to the Gaining Momentum Podcast with your hosts, Abby and Megan. This is the podcast where we try our best to parent our kids for the world we want them to grow up in and the world we live in now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Gaining Momentum. I am Megan, and this is my co-host, Abby, and we're in episode two. It's so exciting. Um, first, can I just say there has been such a tremendous amount of support yes. for um, us launching this podcast, and I just want to put a huge thank you out to everyone who shared the promo or even the first episode, tuned in. Um, sent us questions even um, for this particular episode. We really love that engagement and we're just really humbled and excited that there seems to be some interest in what we're doing here. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Um, We're excited to continue to grow our Gaining Momentum community and we're happy to have you all here with us. Big time. It's exciting stuff and we're back in the we're back in the studio, which is <laughs> our makeshift, uh, extremely hot bathroom spaces that have been converted into our studios. Um, and that's okay. It's all good. We are, no matter what, excited to be here and keep having these discussions. Um, but how's it going? What's going on, Abby? How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be back talking to you, as always. Me too. And I'm, yeah, happy to be crammed into my shower with my laptop, microphone, headphones, and my new kids on the block sleeping bag. <laughs> Obviously, all essential components of a podcast vibe. Of course, I'm just specifically talking, you know? the new kids gear. Hoping I, get, <laughs> hoping I get the right stuff. Oh, well played. It's cool. We'll just take it um, step by step. I could go all yeah. night. All night. <laughs> we will be here all night. Um, what's been up this week, though? What are you doing? What have you been watching? What are you, uh, what are you doing with yourself? I have been watching a lot of Good Girls. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. That I believe it's an NBC dramedy. I don't know what you categorize it as. Yeah. I would categorize it as awesome. Yeah. I totally. am watching it on Netflix. Oh, maybe it started at NBC and is a Netflix show now. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But yeah, it's awesome. great. It's about three moms, so I guess that's on brand for us, mm-hmm. who, this part isn't on brand, turn to a life of crime to support their families. <laughs> um, can you just like not talk about that or you're going to bust our <laughs> other side hustle? And yeah, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. I'm almost at the end of season one. And I think by the time we have our next podcast episode, I will have blown through all three seasons. Yeah, it's amazing. You're going to pass me because I've watched one and two, but I haven't dug into three yet. I just noticed that they put it up on Netflix and I'm super excited. I love the chemistry between those three women. I think it's, it's like partly why the show works so well. Oh, for sure. And if you're not watching it, tune in. It's like one of those shows that also, um, yeah, it's like obviously action packed, but it's really clever and really funny. And they're sort of like, you know, like quietly bringing up lots of things to like tease apart, like culturally. And um, it can be a bit of a thinker, but it's super clever. I love it. So if anyone's been wondering where Matthew Lillard has been since the Scream no movies kidding. ended, yeah. he's on Good Girls, guys. He's okay. Yeah, that was a surprise. It was, hey? Yeah. I was like, and I'm feeling it. Yeah. I'm I mean, it came it. for Retta, Christina Hendricks, and Mae Whitman, and I'm staying for Lillard. <laughs> and I'm staying for the Lillard. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what's the, like, first thing you think of when you think of him? Scream. What's your f- of course. Oh, is it Scream? Okay, is mine? your Scooby-Doo? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> wow. We have been watching all the Scooby-Doo movies in my house, <laughs> so it can't be. But um, mine is actually, you know, that scene in She's All That? When he oh yes, when he's dances dancing to give it yes, to me, baby. Yes, yes, <laughs> I can picture that perfectly. I cannot like think of him or hear that song and not think of that scene. <laughs> That's true. That's it's amazing, true. <laughs> and he's just like such a despicable character in the movie. Oh, yeah, what's his it. name? Brock. Oh, bro- well played. There's that wealth of info that it's lives fine. in I your brain. She's all that every day, all day. It's fine. I love Paul I Walker. Know. It's cool. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's a that's a that's a fan fave. Possibly a problematic fave at this point, but she's all that, not Paul Walker. She's all no, that. No, no, no. Yes, just to be clear, <laughs> the movie she's all that. Um, yeah, maybe we could talk about that one time. Sure. 
Have you been watching anything else or listening to any podcasts or anything? Oh, I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm, I am watching, I'm finding that I need like very light fare right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just like COVID state of the world, temperature mm-hmm. of my home, <laughs> like everything. I just, I feel like I need like lightness. So, um, I've been watching, we've been, my partner discovered this thing on YouTube called pasta grannies. Okay. And it's literally exactly what I just explained. Like it's grannies mm-hmm. and, um, and they're like 10 minute YouTube videos where they make pasta and you watch them. <laughs> like, like they're making it from scratch or like they're putting yeah. it in a pot and boiling it. No, no. They're like making, they're like doing the real deal. Like they're okay. making it from scratch and it's, it's just like very soothing to watch. It's kind of like one of those like sensory things to like watch somebody make pasta is like very soothing. <laughs> and then there are these like very sweet characters that have like kind of their own little backstories and, um, yeah, it's like I can't put my finger on it. I feel like people would enjoy it if you're looking for something to like soothe you and like chill out to. Pasta grannies can't say enough. The only complaint is I watch it and I'm starving after <laughs> I've watched it because everything that they make is like incredible. Nice. And it's lovely to watch. So can't recommend that enough. Jump on it. What else am I doing? Um, I'm always listening to lots of podcasts. Um, yeah. I've been watching a lot of Unsolved Mysteries, which I recognize Ooh, yeah. is not light fair. Yeah, no. But for whatever reason, no, no, it's not. Um, yeah, I was digging into that. Uh, and then just like lots of kids stuff, which is kind of sad. But <laughs> I mean, we have kids. It so. happens to be on a lot of the time. You know, when I was pregnant, I, know. I watched I know. a ton of animated movies. I went through like a real while I was pregnant, I needed to watch animated movies. I don't know what it is because generally I'm not super into animated movies, but like I watched probably Mm -hmm. at least a dozen over like a month during my pregnancy. I feel like you did like a media nesting, like people like (laughs) nest in their home and you were doing like, that's like totally so much part of who you are, like your um, expansive media, pop culture, wealth of knowledge and enjoyment. That's like how you would nest. I like that media nest by watching animated films and <laughs> yeah, the media nest. Um, cool. Well, what else are you? Are you watching anything else or listening to anything? Podwise. Um, well, Netflix released a new season of Jeopardy, so my partner and I are hitting that up pretty hard. And yes, listening again. I'm like you. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I've been listening, obviously, to Thirst World Problems, mm. and I've also been listening to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And my light ones that I really like, I really like the rewatchables. It's like this series on the ringer where they just talk about movies that they've watched over and over again and they have different categories. And yeah, I really enjoy that. But I'm very like cyclical with my podcast. Like I will binge a ton of episodes of one thing and then take a break and then come back. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I I do that also. I need sometimes, yeah, I need sometimes to step away to like reappreciate, if that makes sense. And then I'll come back and revisit somebody uh, that I haven't listened to in a while. You know what I just finished listening what? to one called Guru. Ooh. Um, yeah. And it was like a really fascinating one about oh, this guy. He's like a, um, like a f- pretend guru, I guess, who sort of like is a con artist and gets all these people to invest in his um, lifestyle program or like self-actualizing program okay his name was i don't i can't remember if i just said the name but his name was james ray and there's this incident where he does this um wait james ray do you remember that song from the 90s are you jimmy ray was that oh yeah maybe (laughs) who wants to know (laughs) i don't know why that was so at the top of my mind to be able to pull it out but whatever of course wait a minute is this jimmy ray (laughs) No, I don't, I don't think there's any relation there, but who knows? Um, he's been at it for a while. But anyway, <laughs> the podcast is just about like, it's sort of like a true crime vibe, like something goes wrong at one of his, I won't, I won't spoil it, but at one of his events, and we come to find that like many things have gone wrong at his events, and just unpacking, um, yeah, the personality, the cult of personality with a person like this, and what, what 
vulnerable people are are sort of drawn to when they're looking for something or they're looking for that uh, support in life and it was wait it was are we talking well about done. a fire festival now or i know it's real. similar no it's like there's so, so many examples of this right where people are drawn to um like a charismatic leader or whatever um yeah so this was good i would recommend it it's guru it's through wendry i think they do a number of different kind of different kind of docu-series style ones um cool. yeah and then just like other true crime stuff you know keeping it light but not <laughs> comes and goes yeah fair enough fair enough um yeah i guess should we get right to it yeah i kind of have ants in my pants i'm ready to ready to talk let's bear our topic this week Okay, so now we're going to jump into our segment, Momentum Shoutout. Meg, you saw something cool. Want to tell us about it? I definitely do. So about a week ago, I was at sort of a playground that has a splash park and kind of a wooded area around it in the community that I live in. And there was this moment of kind of a horrific moment where a mom that was at the playground suddenly is standing kind of in the middle of everything and is has that sort of glazed panicked look and is shouting for her child so shouting panicked looking for him everywhere and just sort of like aimlessly but like very intentionally and in a frightened way kind of wandering which if anybody has ever had this happen where you've lost your child in a public place yeah that's it's like that's what it does you feel paralyzed and you can't react um like your mind is wandering you're in that fight flight freeze but it's almost like the freeze can take over for a lot of people and i think that's what was happening here and what was so incredible is that like 20 parents at this playground just completely dropped what they were doing didn't have to be asked um, you know, and sort of like fanned out like a search party around wow. this area and, you know, like continued calling the child's name and looking for him and even starting to like, like a snowball, like pull other people in for this search Aww. for this child, which is, I think what it's actually the most, pro- and as a important like note, we did find the child. Yes. That is <laughs> important to was, note. Yeah. This, this kid little guy was turn. just sitting. I know. Imagine. And we no, I don't him, want to so. imagine. <laughs> no we found him and he um was just kind of minding his business sitting in like some tall grass so okay, yeah, um, the tall grass yeah, will get you every time to lose track yeah and he he couldn't have been less bothered that everyone was looking for him but of what course. i actually think is like the real power in yeah no not worried at all what i think the real power in this moment was is that there was no judgment there yes. was no um like kind of side-eyeing how did this happen why did this happen right um there was no need to be asked and this group of people who don't know each other at all at this playground um all from coming from different places from different Mm -hmm. backgrounds kind of came together without without skipping a beat to like like help this mother and find this child because there was like a notable moment of distress happening for this person right so i want to give a shout out to all those parents that came together it didn't it's like nothing in anyone's brain um was overthinking or uh, mm-hmm. it was like an instinct that all these people like created that village of care and i think that was amazing Ooh, village so of shout care out to everyone. i like that village of care yeah i like that too <laughs> <laughs> anyway i probably stole that from somewhere but it was really lovely to see and i yeah I would, it's just like i want to see more of that everywhere absolutely that's beautiful huge shout out to you parents helping each other out And that was our Momentum shout out. What are we talking about this week on Gaining Momentum? We are talking about race and racism this week. Yes. So we, you know, we've talked about in our previous episodes and or episode and in our promo um, <laughs> about how this is sort of a core issue for us and mm-hmm. something that definitely has motivated us to even start the podcast and come to the mic. Mm-hmm. So we really felt that this was sort of like a really important place for us to, as our first topical episode, kind of ground ourselves in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, f- 
going from there? Like, how are you feeling about having this conversation between you and I just generally? Where, where are you at? How do you feel? I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I am nervous for other people to hear us having this conversation. Ooh, that's a really good way of putting it. I think I feel very similarly. Like I feel so safe and comfortable and like you and I have a certain uh, dynamic and trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been very like mindful of how we approach this episode. But mm-hmm. I think I have a similar like little bit of like butterfly anxiety around other folks hearing the conversation. Um, but that's okay. Yeah, I think it's okay. And I think that happens a lot. And I think this is a conversation between two friends, but also it's a conversation between a black woman and a white woman. And we're going to talk to each other honestly and openly about race. And I think the safety of our friendship will maybe let us ask each other some questions that we wouldn't ask to just like some rando we saw on the street. Totally. Yeah. No, that's such a good way of putting it. Um, using this as a vehicle for having this conversation. And my hope is, is that it inspires other people to be brave and um, have maybe not this conversation with a friend in their life, but maybe the kinds of conversations that we're going to be talking about with their family and their children Mm -hmm. specifically and in their parenting life. Um, So we hope that you can take something from it. And if you don't, and you feel like there were things that you'd like to share with us that didn't work for you or that, um, you think we really missed the mark on, like with respect, we definitely welcome that feedback as well. And we can circle back and we can continue to, um, you know, have the conversation as we move forward. Absolutely. This is not going to be a one and done conversation. I'm sure this will come up throughout various other topics that we talk about, but also its own dedicated episodes in the future as well, because it's a very large, expensive topic and mm-hmm. we can't solve, solve, solve it all in one conversation, but we can certainly dig into some stuff now. Yeah, for sure. And like, maybe we've kind of already touched on this, but I just want to take a second to like, like, why do we feel like this is such an important topic? Why do we want to start here? What do you think? Why do you think this was like where we, where we anchor? Because following the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, the murder of Breonna Taylor, um, the murder of Regis Korczynski-Paquette, the names, the list, it goes on and on and on. I'm still haunted daily by Mm -hmm. the murder of Tamir Rice. And Mm -hmm. as a parent, as a woman, as a black woman, I need to talk about it. This mm-hmm. is a part of my life. This is a part of my parenting life. This is a part of my family life. It has been since the moment I was born. But now with all of these most recent murders coming to the forefront, it's become acceptable to talk about race. And so I want to seize upon this moment to enter my voice into the conversation and to expand the arena so that people are talking about it more so. People in Mm -hmm. my life, people in your life, people who are just stumbling on the pod. If there's some way that we can have an open conversation and make talking about race less taboo, then I want to be here for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel you know, like similarly on a lot of levels, but obviously coming from my identity perspective, some of my motivations look a little bit different in terms of um, just how we can challenge, um, you know, parents who are white parents to be having what is sometimes an uncomfortable and difficult conversation in their own families and um, the way that I'm having those in my own family with my own children and other people outside of my immediate family. It's just like, it's just not, we just can't not be talking about this right now. Exactly. You know, like there's just, it's, it's too urgent. It always has been. This is the thing that I think makes, gets me ragey. Mm -hmm. It always has been, Mm -hmm. but you said something really core in what you were saying there about how all of a sudden there's been a a switch flipped where there seems to be an appetite to have Mm -hmm. the conversation, Mm -hmm. which it, it really truly is horrific that it takes where we're at to flip that switch. Um, And a lot of folks are are already doing this work and having these conversations in their households. Um, But there is something that is like just profound about this moment where people are, people who maybe weren't six months ago are somehow here for it now. Yes. In a way that is is new and and palpable and sort of, I don't know if you're feeling that, but it feels very felt. Yes. Like, mm mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's a good jump off point. Um, A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine sent me this 
beautiful um, piece of writing from the site called A Cup of Joe. And the article is called Five Things I Want to Tell My White Friends by Christine Pride. Mm-hmm. So Meg and I thought we would maybe each highlight some pieces of that article, of that piece of writing, to show kind of the impetus for our discussion and maybe things that resonated with us from it so people can kind of see where we're coming from a bit more. Mm-hmm. So yes. if you don't mind, Meg, I'm going to start sure. with a quote. Yes, please do. So again, this is from Five Things I Want to Tell My White Friends by Christine Pride on the website, A Cup of Joe. To be a person of color, especially one in an all-white space, is to be constantly scanning the horizon for signs of danger or disappointment. It is to be hyper-aware at all times as to how you're being perceived and vigilant about monitoring what people are saying and doing and thinking and hope the other shoe doesn't drop in the form of, of an offhand offensive comment or revelation that would forever color the way I think of you. Only after this careful assessment can one take tentative steps towards friendship, as you and I have done. But even then, the mental energy to build and maintain trust is a labor of love. For a black person to make a white friend is to take a specific risk and a leap of faith. These are all very real factors that make entering into an interracial friendship like we have feel scary and fraught. Wow. It's so interesting because the quote that I'm about to read that jumped out for me overlaps with your quote. Ooh. Yeah. So that's kind of juicy right there. Um, Let's hear it. So this is um, one of two that jumped out for me and really resonated. Um, And so I'm going to start, I'm going to read where it overlaps and then I'm going to go from there. Good. So for a black person to make a white friend is to take a specific risk and a leap of faith. These are all very real factors that make entering into an interracial friendship like we have feel scary and fraught. It's exactly why friendships like ours are so rare. We've had to be brave with each other in very specific ways, and we've had to stake our friendship on a willingness and an ability to, quote, go there, meaning true intimacy is impossible without the subject of race being fully and completely on the table. There can be no room for eggshells in our friendship or elephants. They take up too much space between us. I like it. So what was it about that piece that really hit you? Like the part that you read and then I can speak to why that part hit me. I felt very seen. Like this resonated so strongly to my experience. Like the idea of constantly scanning the horizon for signs of danger or disappointment and being mm-hmm. hyper aware at all times. That's, yes, I feel that so strongly that, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm hyper aware. I'm constantly scanning. I know when I'm in a room, if I'm the only black person, a person of color there, it's the idea of constantly scanning, constantly having to kind of be on your guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the the part that I pick up from where you left off, one of the things that I've become like so much more kind of hyper aware of it probably in the last year and, you know, we're all on our curve. Maybe my my awareness about this probably should have been there sooner, but um, just what kind of like that part jumps out for me very specifically because people who are my friends who are people of color or BIPOC folks, they are taking a risk when they decide to honor me with their friendship. And that's something that is um, really only now becoming apparent to me, like, you know, just based on me being ignorant and not thinking about um, maybe even having a bit of like a colorblind attitude about friendship, um, really starting to like learn that this is a risk to decide to invite somebody into your life um, who maybe represents something that can be really dangerous and really harmful and hard to Mm -hmm. trust is going to be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that part just like hit me in my bones (laughs) in in terms of something that I've been thinking a lot about. And um, even just thinking about like, I'm always kind of thinking about parenthood as I link to it, how I want to like talk about that with my own kids when they have friends that are diverse, what that means to be in friendship with that person and what their responsibility is. Yes. And I, person. in the same way, feel, think about that with my son and just the idea of him having to have that awareness as well and just mm-hmm. constantly being aware of who he is in the space that he's in. Yeah, absolutely. And just the idea of, you know, the feeling other, which we will end up talking about a lot today because othering is a huge part of the BIPOC experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd like to share one more quote if that's cool. Totally. 
So this quote is, I wish you had other black friends. As I was reading all of your heartfelt messages of support, I thought, oh my gosh, how exciting to have to write. How exhausting, not exciting. (laughs) Oh my gosh, how exhausting to have to write to every black friend in your life. But then I realized I may well be your only black friend. And it just got me thinking, I love you, but I'm tired of the role of the black friend too. Yep. Oof. All of these, they're like heart piercing, like truths, you know, that just this is, and also what, just as an aside, the power of writing and like putting, mm-hmm. pos- positioning a person who's reading your work um, in a specific identity experience, oh, that yes. is powerful. Yes. So powerful. Um, do you want to share your other one? Sure. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be, have my fragile white tears all over this piece. Cause this part really hit me in my, in, I keep saying in my bones, but that's it. It's like, it's deeper. It's like right yeah. in your core of your being. Okay. You understand deeply, fundamentally how high the stakes are and that we can't afford complacency any longer. You of all people understand that this battle is, and it is a battle, it is important on a moral level, but also a very personal one because you know me, because you love me, because you want the world to be better for people who look like me. What you and I know to be true is that it is possible. What you and I can do is to continue to be a beacon of love and connection in this world. Our friendship can help light the way forward. I love you and I'm counting on you. Oof. And what is it about that that resonates with you so strongly? Oh, just like I think about my friends who are people of color, who identify as BIPOC um, and they're like, and their families and their children and just the deep responsibility to ensure that their experiences are not violent, traumatic ones in the world that we live in. And when I mm-hmm. say violence, I'm not just mm-hmm. talking about like traditional forms of violence. I'm talking about all of the like living while being a person of color kinds of mm-hmm. violence that people experience. Mm-hmm. There's just such a deep like, like we should want to do that anyway for people that we aren't connected to on a personal level. But then to just take it into that very like personal place of you know, it's just deeply personal to want your son to move through the world in a way that yes, is not yes. harmful and that he is loved and accepted and yes. um, given the chance to be everything that he's destined to be. Yeah. It's just that, that responsibility, it's not a burden. It's an opportunity and it's a chance to show up. Yeah. And yeah, I agree with that. I think part of also just talking about race as our first topical discussion, I always think about it in terms of my son now because there's another life that I'm responsible for outside of my own. And I just, I need everybody in his life to step up their game because I need him to be okay. I need him to be safe. I need him to be loved. Mm -hmm. I need him to be free. Yeah. It's so interesting how becoming a parent intensifies all those things that you needed also. Yes. 100%. In a different way. um, And in the same way, like not the same way, but in a interesting way same for me like all the things I know that I need to be doing Mm -hmm. for the people that I love and even for the people I don't know just because I believe in a just world Mm -hmm. um, I feel like my activism and my intensity around um, thinking and talking and educating and learning on these topics specifically this one has intensified because of my role as a parent Mm -hmm. so it's interesting how that thread um, intensifies how we, what we already maybe needed and, or what we needed to be doing and um, puts us into action in a very different way. Totally. All right. I feel like maybe it's time to dig into the heart of the matter. Get now we know <laughs> where our uh, backgrounders are coming from and our feelings on this subject. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we are going to get into our discussion now, and I think um, what we have decided is we're going to kind of go back and forth with some questions for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, These are questions that we've talked about. We haven't talked about 
our responses, but no. we did collaborate and figure out what felt good for us to ask each other. Um, yes. So just so that that's very clear, no one's being um, blindsided with a question they weren't expecting or that they didn't exactly. want to be asked. Um, but also to be clear, yeah. yeah, we don't know what answers we'll be giving. I totally. didn't discuss my answers with Megan and I also did not discuss them with myself. No, we just wanted to model like some respect around how to have these conversations. Like you don't just start hurling um, deeply personal and challenging questions at somebody, even that even somebody <laughs> that you're close to. It's really important mm -hmm. that you ensure that that safe that space is safe and that that's okay. For I think, like m most importantly, um, you know the person of color in the conversation uh, that that feels comfortable and safe and okay and that that's something they even want to talk about so just wanted to model that a little bit and make sure that if you are digging into these conversations with people you know that that feels okay for them and that it's if you're not entitled to have this conversation with somebody is kind of yes. what I'm getting at um, so we did kind of establish this together and that's kind of a model that we'll be doing in our podcasts asking each other questions we like this interview style it allows us to kind of go back and forth but like Abby said we haven't talked about our responses so that part will be fresh right here right now um, <laughs> So I'm going to start us out. Um, okay, Abby, you did talk about this a little bit, but I'd like huh? to just push a little bit further. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the most recent events um, and the experience of learning about the murder of George Floyd and all of the other folks that you have listed, as well as, you know, so many other people that we are not listing and saying their names. Um, but as a black woman and a parent of a black child, what is going through your head and your heart when you're grappling with these like really public events? Uh, it's, it hurts. Mm -hmm. It hurts from every fiber of my being. I was sad. I was upset. I was angry. I was scared. I, the only thing I wasn't, unfortunately, was surprised. I mm -hmm. did not feel surprised by it which is upsetting and kind of maybe tells you a little bit about the state of the world that we're in right now. But yeah, I was scared and I'm, it makes me scared for my son. It makes me scared for my brothers. It makes me scared for my father. It makes me scared for countless family members. And it makes me scared for people I don't know. It makes me frightened. It makes me terrified and it just, and it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It made me really tired. It was sort of, I went back and forth between a myriad of emotions wanting to stand up and fight and scream and yell and be heard, but also just wanting to curl up and go to sleep and just pretend this wasn't happening or ignore that it was happening for a second because it's a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's so important to hear if it feels good and comfortable, what your experience is with that, because, you know, folks, who are not people of color or who are not black don't realize what they don't have to think about or what maybe we maybe somebody has like seen the news they know what's happened that's awful i want to do something about that but like the, like really like you know like like you said being able to turn it off even in somebody's brain or like not think about it or that just isn't an op that's just not an option um, when it's so mm -hmm. close to who you are absolutely and also i felt highly visible in the immediate aftermath, just moving around in the world. Like I'm a visible minority mm -hmm. and I just felt extra visible afterwards where kind of, because this was so present in my mind and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I couldn't stop thinking about like, I didn't know George Floyd, but at the same time I know George Floyd. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just felt very highly visible moving through the world. I felt like all of my emotions were on display. I felt like, mm -hmm just being myself moving around the world was sort of on, yeah, on display. Like everybody could see everything. It felt very raw. I guess that's mm -hmm. the word I'm looking for. It felt very raw. Yeah. And it also just, again, my son, as far as I know, will grow up to be a black man. Mm -hmm. And this is the world that I'm sending him out into. And it's terrifying. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to, that was going to be kind of my little follow-up. Like when you're, there must be such a connection to thinking about like your visibility, but then also the visibility of your child and um, what that is going to feel like and be like for him moving through the world. Yes. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but my child is mixed race. He is half black, half white, mm -hmm. but as far as the world is concerned, he's black. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's that that piece around being visible. Like I'm sure there have been many times where you have felt visible and where you do feel very visible. Um, but that's really interesting to hear you say that, like in this moment where it was like, because it's such a very public moment where everybody's having a common discussion, you feel like you're almost like a, um, I don't know, like a representative of the issue. I don't know. Yes. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but no, that's sort that of what I hear you saying. that would be accurate. Representative of the issue and then also just like a reminder of it maybe mm-hmm. and just sort of, mm-hmm. hey, I don't know. So have you ever heard of the Black Nod? Yes. Okay. But mostly because of things you've said to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so like there's the black nod where when you are moving around in an environment that is predominantly white and you see another black person, you give each other like a little nod, a little hello, a little what's up, like you acknowledge each other. It's just sort mm-hmm. of like, I see you. Yeah. And so I felt like I was visible in that I felt like non-BIPOC people were maybe kind of acknowledging my presence in a little bit of a different way, but Mm -hmm. then also just the necessity of the black nod. It's always necessary, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, because it is nice to have that sense of community, but also just in the immediate aftermath, just the sort of, it was almost like an extra comfort to be Mm -hmm. able to see each other on the street and acknowledge each other's presence because it's really just all about being seen, feeling seen. Yeah, definitely. Like I see you, even if sometimes we move through the world and and don't feel that from the world we're living in. Exactly. Like other people might not see you, but I see you. You're not alone. I see you. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. Um, is that something that like is that something that you think about how you talk to your son about that? Uh, I have thought about that. Uh, like I'm trying to remember how I learned about the black knot. And I yeah, it's it interesting. Just- an experience like it's just I figured it out and yeah. so I think my son will figure it out and it's interesting too in the ways that I think about it and it's probably overthinking because you know I was a child of like the 80s and 90s so mm-hmm. it was a different world then in terms of moving through space and you know adults being the safe people mm-hmm. and stuff but I think about how when we're out and I give someone the nod and if my son's like, oh, do you know that person? Because, you know, if you're like warmly greeting somebody and you're Mm -hmm. like, no, man, I don't know. Like, we're just both black. Yeah. But then it's sort of, then it becomes also twofold, right? Because I want to pass that on to him because I think it is a beautiful thing to acknowledge that you see each other and I want him to be a part of that. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, he is a small child who needs to learn boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so like, I need him to know yes, like you're saying hi to this person because they're black, but that doesn't mean that you know this person. So you also need to maintain the sense of like stranger danger that you have with everybody else in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a weird thing. Anyway, that's a little bit of an aside. No, but it is like, it's, it, it, again, it, it, it's on point because it's like, that's something that you're thinking about. Like that's Mm -hmm. something that, um, maybe I wouldn't be thinking about how I need to communicate that with my, my kids. Um, but that's something that's an extra layer, right? You're thinking about like, this is part of like our kind of community and like a culture that's there that feels good and is like, feels comforting and not something that you'd not want him to be a part of. But then how do you, yeah, integrate that in like a way that feels safe and okay and not confusing with other messaging maybe that he's getting about moving through the world. Exactly. Yeah. So if anybody has ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anybody in the BIPOC community who engages in the black nod or, a form of the black nod, depending on what your race or ethnic or cultural background is, uh, hit me up. Yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. So I actually have a question for you, Meg. Yeah, please. Do you remember the first time you noticed that not everyone is white? And as a connection to that, do you Mm -hmm. remember the first time you had a conversation about race? Oh, that's such a juicy question. I feel like there's layers to my answer to this question. Um, So I feel like it's a complicated one because I grew up in a community that was not terribly diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember being a kid and when somebody wasn't white, that was like really like exceptional, which is like obviously a huge problem, but just geographically there are certain parts of the world who end up being less diverse than others, mm-hmm. um, depending on what the history of that place is. Right. Um, And so I think that when you grow up in a place that's quite monochrome, for lack of a better term, 
mm-hmm. you kind of do, you go to one of two ways. You either get really afraid of difference. Yep. Or you really are hungry for it. And okay. I think for me, um, and I think both can be problematic, honestly. Like both. Oh, for sure. For both sure. Both have the potential to be really problematic. Um, and it just goes to show what can happen if it, you know, like regardless of where you are and the people that you're surrounded by, what can happen if you don't um, really actively work on making sure that diversity is a part of your life, mm-hmm. however you need to do that. And so for me, um, that was like TV and movies. Like that was my place of learning about um, really ultimately like racial injustice because okay. I don't feel like I was living in a community or in a school space or in a necessarily even a family space. And I'll talk about family in a second here where um, like those conversations were being had at the dinner table. Right. And like probably from a really problematic place because, you know, like lots of people were the same and like it wasn't on top of mind for a lot of folks in that yep. community. Yep. Um, so like I have really profound memories of like moments of t- like pop culture where I was like shocked and appalled and stunned into like uh, asking questions, right? Like does and, an like, example come to mind? Like what sort of Yeah, I have like a consuming? really specific um I'm not sure if anyone watched the incredible program Family Matters as a child. <laughs> Obviously. And like Did now I, I do that. Yeah. There you go. Yes, for sure. I'm sure we could like have a whole episode unpacking the pros and cons of family matters as far as like race representation. (laughs) But uh, yeah, there was like an episode of family matters where Laura and they, yeah, they're this family. You felt really connected to them. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very personal where Laura and tell me if you remember this episode, but like Laura, somebody spray paints the N word on Laura's locker. Ooh. Okay. And that was like, like, you know, one of those like very special episodes where it was like, we're going to have a question something. for you. Did yes. they show the spray painting? How did they represent that word I, in the episode? I think that they straight up wrote the word. That's wow. my memory of it, which is like quite edgy. Bold. Yeah. Bold for that. Mo- I think I, I think like, and thinking about like the demographic of folks who on a TGIF Friday would have been like yeah. tuning into that. Like that was a really bold and kind of like interesting and good choice I think sorry quick pause so TGIF was a block of yeah like kind of (laughs) preteen shows aimed at like maybe preteens teens sort of like a family yeah um night on I think it was like ABC where it was like full house yeah step by step hanging with Mr. Cooper family matters kind of shows that um yeah all had they all centered around families and they all centered around sort of maybe teaching lessons of some sort. For sure. And they all like per, per like sort of um, centered on characters that would have been kind of in the age demo of kids that would have been watching. Except so, Perfect Strangers. Except for Perfect Strangers. You're right. But Perfect Strangers, isn't Perfect Strangers and Family Matters somehow connected? I think Family oh. Matters is a spinoff of Perfect Strangers. Anyway, we'll fact okay. check that. Anyway, anyway. sorry. So Laura, Laura Winslow, the N-word episode. Where, yes. So like, I, for some reason, that's the one that really like is like seared into my mind um, as like really being stunning and like a moment of like reckoning like this, you know, this, this happens to Pete, like Pete, somebody would do that. Like as you a, heard of the N-word before that episode? Um, I, you know what? I wish I had a better memory. I'm sure I had, like, I'm sure even through like, you know, different like music that like my siblings were listening to or that I was starting to engage with. Right. Um, yeah. Like, I'm sure I knew, I'm sure I knew that it was a racial slur, right? Like, obviously I would, I feel like I would have needed to know that in order for it to have the impact that it did. Um, yeah. And then I think that when it comes to, so stuff like that, like TV and movies were really like the things that were bringing my attention to like what a different experience might be because I don't right. know that I was paying attention to that or that there was a lot of diversity in the place that I was growing up. And so I think like like my family, like lots of well-intentioned white families of the 80s and 90s very much parented from like a colorblind perspective. Everybody's equal, everybody's great, like, you know, talking about racism as if that's what is anti-racist right is to just like comment doesn't exist yeah yeah for sure and you know like I want to acknowledge that we have I think we've come a long way in terms of what we now know is effect what needs to be said and 
and how and in terms of like what you know maybe parents of a previous generation where they were parenting from and you know what what was and that doesn't mean it was good or okay but like a very like well-meaning sort of like everybody's the same um but like i think that we now obviously know a lot more and mm -hmm. we have especially in this moment you know reckoned with the fact that that although that might be well-meaning it falls short of like being just and properly addressing the structures that are in place that create inequity mm -hmm. and so i think that's something we want to talk more about in the conversation but that was sort of sure. like where i my sort of like experience as a kid um and so i think that like my education around like race and racism and racial justice has really evolved coming into young adulthood and being like i mentioned before there's sort of like that equally problematic but different thing that happens when you grow up in a place like that where you either like really are looking for something else and like mm -hmm. you know the world must be bigger and have more to offer mm -hmm. um or that scares you and you don't like you don't you're not looking for that and i think i was like kind of in the former camp and moved to bigger cities with more diverse populations and mm -hmm. um yeah like started a journey of learning coming from from there more as a young adult but okay but also we're thinking like as a kid like oh people aren't racist here but then in high school i remember an incident where somebody i can't remember exactly what was done but i definitely remember there being like a swastika incident on like the school side of the school and right. that also being a moment of reckoning like yeah just because i wasn't paying attention or i wasn't hearing people like be overtly racist i'm sure they also i'm sure they were i'm not saying because i didn't hear it it wasn't happening yes um but then to have an incident like that that was a reckoning too like oh this is alive and well mm -hmm. and it's right here right where we live yeah. but also like what you're saying about you know people not noticing it so not realizing that it's happening and i think that's quite common where mm -hmm. people are like but i didn't see it so are totally. you like is this really a problem where there is so much that happens in the world that we don't see and we can't deny Absolutely. everything just because you have not personally bared what born witness bared witness born witness whatever both work. we're not personally <laughs> a witness to it yeah. does not mean that it did not happen and it's easier to sort of hide away and say like oh i didn't see it so therefore it's not there but yeah, that's totally. also very childlike it's like you know when children close their eyes and they think they've disappeared because they can't see you yeah that's such a good assessment and so then i think about adults in like the present day who are doing that still yeah and it's almost like a developmental stunting to like not recognize like just because something you don't contend with or see or notice because you're not you're also not looking for it um doesn't yes. mean it's not happening and act some people are actively not looking for it to oh, the point absolutely. of just um willful ignorance yeah totally and i think like all of that stuff as a parent now like you know i they're all it's all very informing in terms of wanting to do better and maybe better is not the right term i'm not trying to be like um critiquing or harsh around like parents past but mm -hmm. we only know what we know and we are in a particular cultural moment where we know more just yes, like anything. exactly and as you know more you need to do more absolutely that's the that become it becomes like harder to look away mm -hmm. i think that's a place that's really sticky for people At right least now though i hope it becomes harder to look away yeah one would hope i think that that's like a reckoning right now though that could be really tricky is that now here it is like here it is right we cannot we all see it it's here it's profoundly structural there's like layers and layers to how this impacts people's lives and their opportunities and all of the things um yeah it makes me nervous about how white people are specifically are going to either take that information in or decide not to well it's interesting too because from a parenting standpoint i would imagine a lot of people's eyes are being open to something they didn't realize was still so pervasively and aggressively mm -hmm. alive and so they're learning at the same time as they're also trying to teach their children, which I imagine would be challenging. Mm -hmm. But I also say to that, uh, I'm, I'm having to teach my child about race too, but yes. I don't have the option not to. Totally. I think that's one of the powerful things about having a discussion like this is that I want people to hear from somebody that they're getting to know, like, these are the things that I have to think about that I'm always thinking about. And you're just starting to think about. So join me, right? Like, yes, I, join I me. Like and like, let's all teach our kids. So that maybe like, I would love to one day 
be like, hey guys, remember racism? And be like, oh, kind of, but that was so long ago. Yeah. I would love to get to that point. Yeah. I, me too. <laughs> right with you. Um, I feel like I saw like a good, I, I, I hesitate to share it because I can't um, source it. But there was like this meme or something that was going on around on social media that was like um, referring to like white folks living in discomfort of like starting to really come to terms with like structural, cultural, systemic racism. And it was like, this is uncomfortable. I can't even remember what exactly said, but then like the next line was like, you know, from a person of color being like, this is what welcome. This is what life feels like <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that like I've been you know, this like quote in the meme or whatever, it was like, this is how we live all the time. I think you can join us here, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of powerful. I completely butchered it, but it was something of that. tone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can I ask you a question? Of course. So just, you know, I'm talking a little bit about how maybe my family talked about race or what that looked like in my community. Um, Do you remember how your parents approached the topic of race and racism with you as a kid? Like, do you remember having explicit conversations about this in your family? Like, what did that look like on your end? Well, that's interesting because I was actually asking my brother about that because I don't remember us having explicit conversations about race and racism. Hmm. But I think mainly because my parents were born and raised in West Africa and then moved to Canada. So Mm -hmm. I was born in Canada. And so my parents didn't experience racism because they were around all people who looked like them. Mm, Interesting. And so like they sort of learned about racism at the same time as my brothers and I learned about racism, which has got to be jarring because when you're an adult and then your children are experiencing things. And so, you know, some of their stories aren't my stories to tell, Mm -hmm. but like I'm trying to think, I mean, I always knew because I grew up in a predominantly white space. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I was like different or quote unquote, you can't see the air quotes because this podcast, but (laughs) that I was, that I'm, that I was other compared Mm -hmm. to the people around me. And there was sort of a little bit of conversation around expectations being different for me. Mm. And then I remember also kind of being told stories of my of my parents going to like parent teacher conferences and some of the comments from my teachers where mm-hmm. like I was a very good student I did very very well in school and so like my mom would sort of be <laughs> incredulous at some of the comments because she'd be like okay cool so she's got like a 90 plus average um, what's the problem here like why why am I here mm-hmm. and you know it would be like oh she talks too much or is too loud or you know one of those types mm-hmm. of things which is like I was never the class clown. Mm-hmm. I was actually quite shy until probably university. Mm-hmm. But just sort of those kind of things where we were always aware that we would have different expectations placed upon us based mm-hmm. on our skin color. Mm-hmm. And then I was in predominantly white, uh, predominantly white spaces. And like ref, ref, referencing back to that article yeah. uh, that we quoted from in the beginning, the five things I want to tell my white friends by Christine pride. Mm-hmm. I also was the only person of color. Well, the only black person, you know, in gifted and talented classes mm, on many of my sports teams in dance classes in mm-hmm. the activities, extracurricular activities that I did. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that my parents and my, like my family, we didn't sit around the dinner table talking about race. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, honestly, like we lived race. Yeah, like, totally. We are living race. Mm-hmm. And so as things came up, as, as incidents came up, we would discuss them. But mm-hmm. it wasn't ever like sitting down and being like, just so you guys know, there are people who don't look like us because when we left home, we were surrounded by people who didn't look like us. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it also sort of speaks to like, um, you know, there isn't a universal experience in families of color, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody's coming with their own background, their own experience. I think there is kind of like sometimes a stereotype or an assumption that one one person's experience can be applied and that's mm-hmm. just not the case. No, exactly. Like we're not a monolith. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing that I think that we all have in common as black people, besides the fact that we're black, is that all of, like, black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Every single black life matters. Mm -hmm. 
But in terms of treating us as a monolith and stereotyping an entire group of people, we all know stereotypes are problematic. Stereotypes shouldn't be applied to entire groups of people as fact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I can I ask you another question? Of course. Okay. So this question, I just I I think this is like a meta moment, and I want to yeah. acknowledge how much discomfort I have in asking it. <laughs> <laughs> which which I actually, that's something like whenever you feel, okay, white people, white people disclaimer, when you feel like something's rubbing and it's uncomfortable, like look at that, look at that wound and just like explore it a little bit. Like why does it feel uncomfortable? In this case, I think it's because um, you're somebody that I love deeply and it's always hard to hear like when somebody you love has had a negative experience or a harmful mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um but the reality is, is that as allies, and we're going to talk a lot about allyship and something that we want to, I, I personally want to be teaching my own kids. Mm-hmm. It's important to sit in that discomfort with people, right? And to hear it and to take it in, um, even when it's hard. So uh, with that large preamble. <laughs> okay, building up the suspense. Yeah. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about, and remember we have pre- uh, predetermined our questions invented them the like a time or the first time that you remember experiencing um like overt racism or even experiencing somebody hurling a racial slur at you like the n-word has that ever happened for you yeah yeah i'm fairly certain that every black person outside of africa Mm -hmm. has been called the Mm -hmm. n-word or whatever variation of the n-word is in the country that they are living in Mm -hmm. um so yes i absolutely have been called the Mm n-word uh the first time I believe it was at a birthday party when I was in third grade. Oh, that's horrible. We were at an ice skating party Mm -hmm. and just these two boys who I didn't know were also just randomly ice skating. They weren't involved in this birthday party in any way. They just happened to be at the same uh, skating venue that we were at. And Mm -hmm. then, yeah, they just, I was going by and they just called me the N word and it was devastating. Yeah. No kidding. And because I think, like, obviously, I knew the word before then. I hadn't had experience with being called it, but I knew that it was hurtful. I knew that it was done to other me to point out that I'm different from them. Mm -hmm. And I also think the response to it from the birthday party that I was at, and this goes back to, again, like how people handled things then and hopefully Mm -hmm. not how people would handle things now. But it was mostly, I don't remember anybody calling out those boys. I don't remember um, the parents at the party saying anything to them. I remember it being awkward and uncomfortable. Mm. And so kind of just like being very upset and being like very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and like not feeling safe like not feeling like I wanted to be there anymore but at the same time just kind of having to suck it up because Mm. there was a birthday party going on and nobody else was making it into the as big of a deal as it should have been Mm. and so I think that's experienced a lot of times with BIPOC people where you're in a situation where you kind of just have to suck it up because if no one else is making it a big deal then sometimes you can't make it a big deal either you don't get to make it a big deal Mm -hmm. which is obviously not fair and it's obviously not right but no. that is what happens yeah it's I was gonna say um I mean you just did talk about it but just if that's been a theme that you've noticed in your own experience where you want to make everybody else comfortable is there sort of like a bit of that or is it is it just yeah, like depending on what kind of a space I'm in yeah yeah and I think it's part of it too is just safety yeah for sure Because if you are the other in a situation, if you're the one that stands out, that sticks out, then it's just feel safer to do what you can to blend in and not call attention to yourself. So somebody else messing up and just being messy, (laughs) somebody else being messy, sloppy, disrespectful, and honestly, okay, so somebody else fucking up and calling yeah. you a word that they oh, should yeah. becomes my problem instead yes. of the person who did the, who did that. And that's very hard. And especially as a child. And it's something mm-hmm. that I think about a lot with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just, I think a lot, my partner and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. We, I like, how do we prepare our child for the first time he's going to be called the N word? And, and it's because he's going to be called the N word. 
if the world continues the way it is, he will be called it. So it's not an if, but it's a when. So my struggle is, do we try to prepare him for it? Do we tell him about this word ahead of time? Do we tell him how loaded it is? Do we tell him the intention is just to hurt him as deeply and as quickly as possible? Or do we wait till he experiences it and then comes home and asks us about it and talk to him then? And then sometimes I just think about how messed up is it that this is a conversation that I have to have? This, this is a conversation that my partner and I have to have, that these are the thoughts that go through my head, that this is something that I have to repeatedly come to. Mm-hmm. And even, so my son is three. Mm-hmm. He can't read yet, but he's pretty close. And so we were on a hike and we stopped to sit on a bench so my son could look out at the water and scrawled on the bench, carved into it. Somebody had carved the N-word. And yeah, like the day before, my son had just read his first word. So then I thought to myself, oh shit. Yeah. What happens when he can read? Like this might be a situation where I'm going to have to conversation way sooner than I'm prepared to and then I want to and just steal that bit of innocence from my son because mm-hmm. somebody couldn't keep it together and not just like what is the point of writing that word on a bench what is mm-hmm. like it just makes me really upset and it makes me really angry and mm-hmm. I just I don't want my son to experience that but he will yeah I don't want your son to experience that either that's well, I horrific. have like a scenario that plays it in my head when I think about it. Like I'm just picturing mm-hmm. he's, he's such a happy kid and he just, he's very social. Mm-hmm. So I can just, I picture him on the playground and like running over to two kids who are older. Cause you know, kids his age love older kids. And mm-hmm. I just picture him running over and asking him to play. And then just somebody just like hurling that word at him and him not knowing what it means, but knowing that they're doing it to hurt him. And I can just picture his little face, mm-hmm. just the emotion spreading across it, just looking confused because he just wants to play Mm -hmm. and then just looking hurt and then just like kind of pausing because he's not knowing what he's supposed to do or what's going to happen next and still probably a part of him still hoping that he's going to be allowed to play with these people who are doing Mm -hmm. whatever cool activity it is that he thinks looks fun and then I just picture him just turning and running back to me and just being Mm -hmm. so upset and confused and not understanding why these kids won't play with him and why they would say something to hurt him. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I just picture like scooping him up into my arms and having to explain to him racism. Yeah. Oof. And I want to just pause to note a couple things on that. It's essential that parents who are not parents of color recognize and really internalize that those aren't things that they have to think about right that that's not part of what you have to think about as a parent and it's it's an important acknowledgement for sure um and just how stressful isn't the right word it's like it's a it's a daily trauma right to have to think about what's that going to be like how am i going to handle that and so i want to acknowledge that for what it is and really hope that our community of listeners are able to take something from that. Cause it's also very powerful to share that. And it's, you don't have to share that either. That's a gift for you to share that fear and to talk about that place that you're, where you're thinking about that. I, mean, for your I don't life. have to, but I also, it goes back to wanting everyone in my son's life to be able to step up their game, to be there for him, to protect him. Because if everybody Absolutely. in his life is stepping up their game, then maybe he won't have to. Maybe he'll just get to be a kid. Maybe yeah. he'll just get to go and play. And maybe when something like this happens, he won't have to be the one to step in and deal with it and confront it. Absolutely. And that was going to be my other point is that this is why we're doing what we're doing. We want our communities to be better. We want our communities to be places where that's an intolerable experience that everybody has skills and recognition to um, intervene so that your son doesn't have to sit in that confusion and try to figure out what next, because a bunch of people who are there, who have been equipped, who get it, who are doing better um, are there to do that for him and on his behalf and to ensure that that is reckoned with in the appropriate way so that the harm doesn't live with him. Yes, exactly. Like I want it to be, if he's at the playground and tries to play with somebody and somebody doesn't want to play with him, I want it to be just because he's too little or they just don't want to play whatever he wants to play, Mm -hmm. not because he looks the way he looks. Yeah, absolutely. That's super powerful. I think that's probably a good spot for us to take a little break and then we'll come back with um, some more questions. Does that feel good? Feels good. Awesome. 
So this is where part one of our conversation is going to wrap. We'll be back with part two in two weeks because as you can imagine, there is so much more to say on this topic. We hope you join us then and we look forward to carrying on the conversation. Like we do each episode, we want to take a minute to just pause for momentum and I'm going to pass it over to Abby. Exhausted. Exhausted by the way my skin has been used against me in ways both small and large, by knowing my son's skin will be used against him in those same ways and more, by people dimming his brightness simply because of his very existence, overwhelmed by the new cycle and what it represents, by the weaponizing of race on a warped scale of market value, by worrying about my family's safety, depleted by the casualness with which black lives are extinguished, by the mislabeling of murder as self-defense or protocol, by the stress that comes with living in the middle of a pandemic time. I am exhausted, overwhelmed, depleted, but I cannot rest. Because of my blackness, I do not get to rest. I always have to be ready. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you find podcasts. Gaining Momentum is written produced and edited by Abby and Megan with music by Evan Dysart and podcast art by Catherine Katcha and a special thank you to our podcast mentor Belle from the podcast Thirst World Problems. Thanks Belle. Thanks Belle. And if you want to find any more info on any of their work, please check out the links in our podcast description. Mm-hmm.